previously on the Trade Waiters. I would agree with that. I, I finished Volume 3 and I was like, I think this is actually my favorite volume in the series. Yeah. And then Volume 4 and it was like, I think this is my least favorite volume in the series. So <laughs> Ooh, it's not that I would say that it hit its, it hit its stride, so to speak. But I think that when you boil Scott Pilgrim down to its essence, Book 3 really, really captures that. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, you guys might have been surprised that I've been manipulating the controls uh, without touching them today. It's because I actually uh, haven't had any milk or eggs uh, leading up to this podcast, which is why I have those psychic abilities. I was just like, this is genuinely really creepy, because I, I kept thinking about, like, that guy that's 23 that dates... Like a sixteen-year-old or whatever, it is like, yeah, she's a Catholic schoolgirl. Like I, like that. That's a bad dude. Like it's like, it's really hard to write uh, a sequel of not even a sequel because a sequel implies like one book finishes and then the ne next book has like new arcs. But if it's an ongoing series, I it's very hard to write a volume of that when you haven't written the ending yet. One of the funny things I was thinking about the last time I was in Toronto, which was like this year for, uh, well, it was like a vacation I took that sort of sandwiched around TCAF, was since I moved to the West Coast, like I never think about Pizza Pizza ever anymore, because <laughs> it's not like a West Coast franchise, like that doesn't exist here, but it's like everywhere in Toronto, like that was always like, oh, do you, what do you want to get? Oh, gotta go to Pizza Pizza, and Pizza Pizza features like really prominently in this comic, which I was sort of noticing them like this time reading through. We are the Trade Waiters, and we are here to make you think about death and talk about comics and stuff. Welcome back to the Trade Waiters. This is episode three of our Scott Pilgrimage. We made it. Hooray! We're almost there. Uh, so this will be volumes five and six of the series by Brian Lee O'Malley. The, the ultimate, the ultimate, okay, uh, never mind, sorry. Penultimate and ultimate. <laughs> Should we start with a character revealing question? Do you have another one? Oh. Was I supposed to have two? Is it your books? You picked these books. How many episodes were we recording? I got three? shut down last time I tried to bring character revealing question in. Um, okay. Obviously, you haven't had to uh, fight them to the death, but have you ever had to deal with one of your partner's exes before? Have you ever had like a, an uncomfortable or possibly positive interaction with an, an ex? Uh, so I'm Jam and no. <laughs> that's never happened. Never had to deal with an X situation, thankfully. <laughs> I'm counting my lucky stars. Yeah, I'm Kate hey, Garasa. I don't think I've had one either. Yeah, I don't know. My ex like moved across the country. So yeah, no, I, I moved across the country. It just as soon as the relationship yeah. ends, I moved like several times times away. That's been my strategy to date. <laughs> that's a good move, guys. Uh, so I'm I'm Jeff Ellis, and yeah, I was dating someone, and their ex lived nearby, but apparently they couldn't cope with looking at me or talking to me. So there's multiple times when they were coming by to like pick up stuff 
or just deal with business uh, where I had to leave the house and go walk around the block uh, until it was safe to come back so that they couldn't they could not be upset. Though conversely, uh, the person I was seeing eventually got back together with that person and they had to come by my apartment and pick up stuff and I thought about just insisting he also walk around the block just because, but I decided I would actually be like an adult. That's bad. That's, <laughs> that's like a good story. That's bad. <laughs> oh, people are nightmares. <laughs> All right, uh, I'm Jonathan, and I have not had a serious enough relationship for that to be an issue. Oh. <laughs> I'll share just a little one. Um, once we saw a movie together, um, me and a partner's ex, uh, and she introduced me to gingins, which are a treat. It's like a little candy. <laughs> and that's, that's just all I... I'm just going to keep it light. That's nice. You know, that's like, a good story, I say, too. I, I like say positive or negative. People are good. <laughs> yeah. All people are awful. All people are amazing. <laughs> no, that's really sweet. <laughs> so, does someone want to talk about... Right, here we are. Five. Five and six. So Objectively? I mean, I know that you guys didn't like the number four as much, but I find, like, five and six, I'm like, hmm, a lot less fun, huh? Yeah. Uh, no, it's true. I, I definitely, uh, I started volume five, and I'm like, woof, okay, here we go. Get through two more books of this. Uh, fun in. Yeah, and thankfully, I did get through them pretty quickly. Like, the pacing of the books is very fast, so even though these last two books are very thick and very high in the page count, I, I found them quick to read. Mm-hmm but not necessarily as engaging as the previous mm -hmm. ones. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that maybe makes the book less engaging is, like, we don't really learn anything about Ramona's exes in this book, like mm. the yes. Kyle and Ken. Like, you just, they're just sort of there, and whereas with previous exes, we've gotten kind of, like, an interesting in-depth backstory for some of them, and, like, there's just a little bit more going on for, like, Book five are kind of like non-events. Yeah. yeah. Um, it seems like just this annoying thing that they have to do that was getting yeah. in the way of almost the soap opera-esque plot that Jeff, you were describing, held you so much mm -hmm. in books four. Yeah. But I certainly wanted to hear more about the, the, the twins. And they had an interesting story set up about how Ramona was playing one against the other, but mm -hmm. we never really got more than just that one-line description. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because one of the things I like really appreciated in like earlier volumes were those flashbacks. And and stuff, um, and we didn't really get that here. Yeah, I I um I found it interesting that I mean we're going to talk about the movie at the end of this. So I I know I took note that in both the movie and in the books, uh, these two evil exes are just such nothing footnotes. Um, it's almost like. I almost feel like Brian Lee O'Malley was like, oh crap, I said seven evil exes? Um, okay, there were some twins, and, and they're here, and now they're gone, and okay, now we can get to Gideon. Like, I really feel like they were just these speed bumps on the road. I found it interesting in this one where uh, there's actually a moment where, like, um, I think it was kind of telling where they're at a party, and then basically Scott has to fight this robot, so Ramona gets mad and goes out to have, like, a cigarette, and then ends up talking to Kim Pine, and in the background you see this big epic fight with a robot happening. And I think I did sort of appreciate the fact that, to me, this was, I think, almost Brian Lee O'Malley saying, like, okay, I'm kind of done with these big battles. Like, I want to do this character stuff. And so he's, like, pushing the fight off to the side, and it became 
this book became to me a lot more about growing tension between Scott and Ramona and revisiting more of the issues with Kim and Scott. And uh, it's actually interesting now that I think about it, where you have book one, you sort of have Knives Chow and Scott and Ramona, and then you sort of have that changes to like books one and two, then books three, four, you have Lisa Miller and Scott, and now it sort of gets back to like Kim Pine and Scott. And so it's always been sort of like another girl in the background as maybe something that's going to distract Scott or pull Scott away from Ramona and maybe he's going to go down a different path. And I don't know, in some ways I almost think that if you really want to have a twist in this story, uh, don't have him bother with the last couple exes and he just meets like another girl on the way and like, you know, gets his life together with her instead. Like, oh, that would be a letdown. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I will echo that statement that I really liked the role that Kim Pine played in these last two books. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really appreciated her being there and I thought that, uh, she brought a lot of character to the story that was happening and was, I'm, I really, I guess the way that I can put it, especially as we're talking about the movie now, I really appreciated how much time we got to spend with Kim Pines that we didn't get to spend with her in oh, the movie at all. Yeah, that's, I, I'll have like a 15 minute rant about Kim Pine in the movie for later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, the, the backstory, like I didn't realize that that was what I was missing from this book, but yeah, the the backstories for the other characters is definitely like if that was present in this book, I think I would have enjoyed it uh, a lot more. Yeah, like the the relate as the relationship between Scott and Ramona falls apart, that's also not I feel done in a terribly interesting way mm-hmm. because so much of it is based on not knowing things. We don't really know Ramona's motivation, so it's hard to really get a sense of what's even happening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I I, I I, felt like in some instances, like, Ramona was just, I didn't quite understand, like, why is she so mad? Or, like, what, what's the problem now? Like, like they, Scott came into this not expecting to have to fight evil exes, then it's become declared that, no, you have to fight these seven evil exes. And now it's sort of like, Ramona's almost like, ugh, you and these evil exes, when are you going to make time for me? And it's like, well, but... I thought that was the whole thing, is that he has to do this, and uh, then... But it, but it becomes clear that that wasn't Ramona's plan. No, mm-hmm. no. But, I mean... This is something like, that was set up by Gideon. But, I mean, why would she be mad at Scott and not mad at Gideon? Like, Well, she can be mad at both. Right. Because, I mean, theoretically, if you're going along that line, Scott doesn't have to go along with it. Mm. Right? Scott could just not fight the evil exes. He could refuse. He could mm. go pacifist. Yeah, yeah. Even uh, if... Um, even if that's the source of tension, if it's Scott has to make a choice, mm-hmm. then that would be more interesting too, whereas he is not aware that there is a choice to be made. Mm-hmm. He's just, you know, this is the narrative that's been set up, and since he's right. so conditioned by games, yeah. he just follows it blindly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's that could be, like, an interesting way to, to put it. It's like, maybe, yeah, this idea that, that, like, yeah, if it was written more in that way, like, well, it certainly wasn't. Yeah, yeah. That, that that might have made this work better. I definitely think, like, uh, from rereading it, I have a greater appreciation for the whole series. I actually appreciated Volume 6 more the second time, uh, but I still think, for me, 5 just stands out as the most just stutter-stop, like, just choppy pacing, like, characters are acting inconsistent, like, 
I didn't feel Scott did a lot of personal growth in this volume. I mean, really, Kim Pine was the only character that really grew a lot in this volume. It's almost like the opposite of growth, where it's like a continued stagnation that now gets to the point of breaking mm. relationships, mm-hmm. whereas before there was, like, Scott Pilgrim is stagnating in book one, and all his friends are like, hey, Scott, get it together, you oaf. And then, like, it continues books two and three. Scott still doesn't have a job, and his friends are like, okay, now seriously, boy, you gotta, mm. you gotta get a job. You gotta get on with your life. And now in, in books five and six, even his girlfriend, Ramona, is like, Scott, get yourself together. This is no longer acceptable, and mm. it's starting to break relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, and book five also had one of my most favorite moments, which is Ramona just getting more and more done with all of it, and then just... Cutting her hair off and leaving. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is something I feel very relatable. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that, again, that's maybe like another positive is just her frustration at the situation. Because I think that is something that doesn't get addressed in the first four volumes is, is it appropriate for someone's ex to just sort of show up and be like, you got to fight me first. Like, in the real world, that would just be not acceptable. Yeah. Um, and yet, so yeah, it's, it's, I know that it's set up in this way that it's meant to be a, it's like he, it's like that kind of quest. It's like, um, the, the, the guy fighting for Brunhilda, right? It's like, he's trying to fight his way up the mountain to like earn his lady love. It's like kind of pulling from like myth in a certain way. But, but yeah, like, I mean, the reality is that like for Ramona, like she does not happy to just be this prize to be fought for. And it is good to see her kind of, yeah, maybe exercising some more agency. But then, of course, when she leaves, she leaves to go right back with Gideon, which is, again, sort uh, of... Uh, no, she doesn't. Or, oh, okay. It seems like she leaves to go back with Gideon, but she doesn't. She goes and hangs out at her dad's place for a while. Okay. For wilderness training. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, which, I mean, that's a good twist, but the fact that it, like, I didn't remember that twist either. <laughs> until I reread it. <laughs> so I would have liked to have seen some of that wilderness training, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. You need to like the twist. If it's just a one-line twist, it doesn't have the impact. If you get to see more of it, yeah, I just reread that. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I appreciated that that resolution where Ramona didn't come back for Scott, she came back for herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I liked that aspect, and I thought that was, in terms of the ending, an aspect that was handled in a way that interested me. Mm. If we want to talk about book six as well... Um, well, they kind of, they, they flow they, yeah. very one into the other, I mm-hmm. think. There's mm-hmm. not a very clear division that book five stands out to me, just whereas book five is all of this waiting waiting for Gideon, waiting for Ramona to come back, waiting for the final evil ex for, to, to appear and for all of this to get resolved. So as a book on its own, five doesn't really hold me except as this path to six. For book six, like, uh, I think this is only the second time I've read this book, so I didn't remember most of it. And this is the part that's most different from the movie, so I don't have that as a source to remind me of the plot. But it like, it feels like kind of a hot mess. Like, there's a lot of stuff going on, and it doesn't really all connect very well. Uh, the one thing I do like is I like where all the character arcs end. Mm-hmm. That feels really solid. Like, I think everybody's arc kind of gets to a point where it makes sense for their characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes for better or for worse. Yeah. But the way that they get to those arcs is kind of jumbled up, mm-hmm. for me, at least. Yeah, so I, yeah, I went back through... Sorry, I totally... Yeah, I'd forgotten that... That's right. He fights Gideon, and then Ramona kind of shows up in the midst of that uh, fight. 
and dies at one point. Ah, <laughs> oh, the dick Gideon, what a dick. Um, <laughs> I did say I liked that caption where it was like, like, Gideon has stolen the power of love from Scott. What a dick. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, like, yeah, I, I did think that uh, rereading Volume 6, it felt a little more cohesive, maybe just because it was wrapping things up. I appreciated like having Envy Adams come back and that, that Scott was and Envy sort of actually legitimately bury the hatchet and sort of move on. I liked that. Um, I thought, that, you know, again, I know that they have, there's been some problems with Knives and Scott, but I even think, like, they have that thing where, like, they, they kissed that last time and it was horrible. And it's like they both are finally, like, done with each other. And so, Knives like, gets to go to university. Yeah, yeah Knives yeah. is moving on with her life, going to better places. She's done with Scott. They settle things with Envy. Scott settles things with Kim. All that resolution was quite good. And actually, I think this is my favorite part of Volume 6, is just where they actually address the elephant in the room with Kim Pine, that he goes out to see Kim in the wilderness, and then uh, he kisses her, and she kisses back, and they have this moment where they have to sort of address all of this relationship stuff that both of them have been sort of ignoring and just pretending didn't happen and I really think that in a lot of ways, Scott not dealing with that stuff with Kim is part of where a lot of his problems came from. And that sort of finally dealing with that, I think, gave him what he needed to really get it together for the end of this book. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> the the battle with Nega Scott that follows, which gets a little bit of a nod in the movie, mm-hmm. but and it was kind of thrown away as a gag. But I liked that this refusal to confront your past is the fuel that is mm. Nega Scott. And then when... They merge back together, finally stops being a dope who forgets everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Where he accepts that, that it, it's kind of like a metaphor for accepting that you have shitty traits, which mm-hmm. I think is a really big facet of growing up. Like, you can mm-hmm. go through all the motions of saying, like, yes, I have a job. I went to university and now I have a job and now I have a place of my own and I have these relationships. But one of the truer marks of adulthood is saying, oh, I have some real shortcomings that I need to accept and address. And the confrontation with Negascott meant, meant that to me. Mm-hmm. And I liked that aspect in the book that was glossed over to its detriment, I think, in the movie. Oh, yeah. But it was a fun gag in the movie. Yeah. But yeah, no, I mean, and that's an important... I think that is actually a really important scene in this book that it it, it is a shame that they didn't have something equivalent in the movie because well, it's... See, I, I feel like in a lot of ways it's... Um, and maybe it, it wasn't made clear... In, in here, but I almost feel like, in a way, it's like the Nega Scott, that's part of the Scott that started dating a 17-year-old, you mm-hmm. know? And it's like, he needs to confront that and be like, no, that was really crappy. I was really crappy to Knives. I was really crappy to Kim. I need to stop treating people like garbage, basically, because he has been treating people like garbage throughout the series, and I, I felt like confronting Nega Scott was where it is sort of him finally copping to a little bit of that and Mm -hmm. and that's where yeah that first step to adulthood is you know actually taking responsibility for the things you do because that's i think when you're a kid you just deflect 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 and some people go all the way (laughs) in their whole life they become president of the united states and they're still just deflecting and just acting like a five-year-old you know and it's like it's important to really take responsibility for the awful things you say and do 
Like, I'm going to disagree with something that Jeff said earlier. I really didn't, like, not about the president. I'm, I'm on board with this that. Where, this is where Jonathan suddenly, like, welcome to the Trade Raiders, our new politics podcast. Um, but, hey, guys, I've got some opinions about Charlottesville that you might not agree with. Oh. <laughs> no, thank you. Um, Jonathan. Okay, back on topic. Uh, I was going to say that I really didn't like Scott when he was sort of at the bottom of his, this arc where he like he can only he seems to only be able to decide that our relationship is completely over when he tries to make out with the other person mm-hmm. it's like mm-hmm. no you don't that's uh. he, like i i was that was when i was most frustrated with scott i think and he, this yeah. happens like with all of his exes like he yeah, can't seem true. to learn from one to give him advice for the next like no don't do this what are you doing with your life <laughs> At least you have to make out with envy. Um, no, no, but he says something about casual sex and stuff. Oh, yeah, he does. Like, we should right. have casual sex, and she's like, uh, uh-uh. and he's like, I don't know, Wallace said things. <laughs> Which you is should like, no, don't do what Wallace tells you to do. Wallace is just playing games. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like there is, I actually feel like I would want to reread book six again just to sort of get my head around everything that happens in this book. Because there's a it lot is, of stuff. It is really fast in its pacing. Like, I probably read through this entire book in 30 minutes, just at the pace that I was trying to read through it. And it is a little bit, like, the, the it flows, but in a way that you're hard, you have a hard time actually following what is happening. So maybe it doesn't flow that well. There's a lot of twists, too. Like, okay. I'd also forgotten the twist where... Uh, Ramona's bag is the access to her subconscious and also the subspace network. So I didn't understand that part, I will admit. Like, what is Gideon's role with the subspace network? And I don't actually think I really understood how all that wrapped up at the end. I was I was so confused. It, it was something Five about, like, holding or, like, trapping your negative emotions. And I, I, it was really convoluted, It's like a honestly. sexy mind slave for Gideon and, like, a hot outfit in her own <laughs> mind because she secretly wanted to be a sexy slave. And he was... The, the looping, like, exclamation marks that come out of your head where, like, the super space highway goes through you and makes you... I don't know, man. <laughs> See, I, I, I think that like... at this point, this is where I think Scott Pilgrim works better when you read the fights as, like, metaphor. Uh, yeah. And, and so it's, like, in a lot of ways, I... Like, even though, yeah, maybe she didn't need to be dressed up in, like, S&M gear, um, I think that... Ultimately, like, the conflict with Gideon is that Gideon's the one that Ramona didn't really get over. Like, if you look at the black, the, the flashbacks with the other exes, she was the one sort of leaving them. Gideon's the one that sort of, I think, broke up with her. I can't re- quite remember, but it's sort of like, he's the one that's stuck with her, that she can't quite get over Gideon. Mm-hmm. And so I don't, I can't explain to you how it all connects, but the kind of big fight at the end where it's like he's this big monster and he's holding a like subservient version of her in his hand and Scott's fighting it, it's like he's become this big thing in her head. And until she can kind of get that out of her head, she's never going to really be able to get together with Scott. Now, really, it should be Ramona taking him out, but they've set this whole, like, fighting evil exes thing up, but, like, I I did say, like, I, I would say, like, in my notes, like, I, I thought that the 
connection between Ramona and Gideon made a little bit more sense to me this time around, that it's like he's this toxic relationship in her life, and she can't get away from him just because it's like he's, he's in her head. Now, and maybe she's, in the story, he's literally inside her head, but again, if, as a metaphor, I think everyone has maybe like an ex that was bad for them that just was in their head for a while, and you really just had to get away and meditate and clear your head and there's a like yeah like sometimes people leave scars in you you know yeah. uh, and I just that's how I see Gideon it's like a really toxic relationship that that left its mark on Ramona okay yeah I get that as a metaphor but I think like the actual narrative of like how does the subspace work and why is Gideon like doing those things doesn't wrap up satisfactorily mm-hmm. like yeah yeah um, if you're gonna do like a metaphor use use a metaphor like a science fiction metaphor for these relationships, the science fiction metaphor has to at least be understandable. Because mm. it's just like, I think it's like two speech balloons, basically, where he's like, I made my millions through emotional warfare. It seals you inside your head, and she's been riding the glow into subspace, and it's like, I still don't really understand Yeah, that I want to so. see that. I want to see like, how that works. Um, could be worse. She could just turn around and point to a little computer chip on the back of her neck. It's <laughs> 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 <sighs> so late, and it's here and, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I I feel like because it's like the glowing head and the subspace has been such like a big element throughout all the books, and at the end it's like, oh well, I mean if you're gonna explain it like that, maybe just don't explain it. <laughs> yeah, I felt like this whole book felt way more metaphorical than the rest of the book, whereas book four to me became way more plotting and a little bit too literal for the world that I had been set up to enjoy, mm. and then books. Uh, Book five was also very literal, and then book six was like a hundred percent metaphor to the mm. point where it was too difficult to actually relate it to real things that were happening, and that made it difficult to follow. Mm. It feels a bit awkward too. Like I'm too. I agree with that, and it was just kind of expanding on it to have a work that for me felt like it's a fun adventure, like kind of action fantasy, maybe a little science fiction. A fun adventure that is, for the most part, literal. Like, there are cool battles, and there is, like, a half-ninja person running around. And then to just suddenly be like, for for it to make sense, the last book is actually all metaphorical, and this all didn't really happen. Um, It feels very jarring. Mm. Yeah, Um, and it it almost felt like they were questioning the entire premise, whereas before there had been these peppered references where, oh, yeah, Scott's the best fighter in the country, and there are all these video game things that are happening... And then there were a few moments where the characters seemed to question whether that was real or whether that was Scott Pilgrim's kind of delusional interpretation of the world. And it feels rickety. Like, mm-hmm. the whole thing felt, like, rickety to me. Like, it, it, and the ending especially, like, it was, like, striving for meaning and it just didn't mm-hmm. hit the mark for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the whole, well, this whole second half of the story could have used a second draft mm-hmm. or another draft. I think um, there was there's, a... there's a lot of really good stuff, and it's not always quite fitting together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, this, we talked about this last episode, that once you've got five volumes drawn, you can't go back and mm-hmm. throw in extra things to make book six work. Or like, I don't know, <laughs> maybe by the point you've drawn five volumes, you're like, let's just get to the end, please. I have other things I want to <laughs> well, work on, but I have this contract. Like, I, I, if, if memory serves, uh, I think this came out just before the movie. I think, I think after, that he was under the... I think this came out before the movie because they wanted to be able to have people read the entire okay. series before the movie. The movie was movie. done, though. Yeah. but So I 
I, I mean, maybe I could be wrong. I should have maybe researched, but my, if memory serves, I read the entire series before watching the I movie. I think that, that and, drives my memory as well. But it, they, were, they were very close, and so I would feel like maybe Brian Lee O'Malley was under the gun to just, like, get it done. And I will say that something I found jarring in the art was, um, like, that... I think to help him get it done, he brought in a background artist. Yeah, there's which, two assistant artists that are credited. Right. You'll find their names. Lots of wrist problems. Um, oh. Right. Um. Well, I mean, and sorry, I, um, I mean, I'm not saying it's bad that he got a background artist. It's it's in the manga tradition that he had someone doing his backgrounds. But I would say that, like, when I first read Volume 6 and I turned to, like, a page like this, uh, which maybe we'll do a screenshot of, I was just like, wow, Brian's really getting it together with backgrounds. Good for him. And then I read the credits and was like, oh, like all these amazing backgrounds is somebody else. He's literally just drawing characters now and someone's doing all the background stuff. (laughs) I was kind of disappointed and I actually found it jarring because you don't get backgrounds of this detail. Like when you look at the Honest Eds that was so lovingly rendered in Volume 3... Like, it's not got good perspective, but it's very, just in his style, this loving rendering of this building that he's familiar with. And then when you have, like, the Chaos Theater building in super amazing architectural perspective, it's like, what world are we in now? Like, it used to be this simplified cartoon world, and now we have these hyper-real backgrounds with these simplified characters just artistically felt a little jarring t- because it only started in book six. It wasn't mm-hmm. an aspect of earlier volumes. I honestly didn't even notice. I didn't it. notice either. Like, um, yeah. The assistants were John Kantz and Aaron Anchetta, if I'm saying that right. And I, I do like that the background artists are credited mm-hmm. because the tradition in Japan is that you don't credit your right. assistants right. and their names never show up in the books. Right. So no, I, I, yeah, that's I, a positive. No, I mean, yeah, like again, I, I don't want this to come off that I'm like Brian Lee O'Malley's a talented artist, and he definitely was still the guiding force of this book. I just because it wasn't an aspect of the earlier volumes, it just felt a little jarring. Like, yeah, for example, uh, sec- Seconds, which we was our first podcast, um, the whole volume, the whole book was done with a background artist, and up front it said done with this background artist. I didn't have a problem with that because it was consistent throughout from start to finish, but I just felt like this became this weird X factor at the very last volume that wasn't part of the earlier volumes. I don't know. I mean, it's not a big deal. It is just the backgrounds, but it, it's just like, yeah, it just to me it felt a little jarring that suddenly these hyper-real backgrounds show up that you didn't see before. Seeing it on the page, like the physical page right now, the page you're holding open actually is pretty jarring to me personally. I didn't notice it during my first reading on my phone, but uh, yeah, I can I can see a little bit. It's a it's a good thing to bring up, um, like as an artistic comment mm-hmm. on the series. Like yeah, I think if the whole series was handled with a background artist, I wouldn't be bringing it up. It's just because it was something that only started in volume six. It just felt a little bit out of the blue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you made your yeah. point. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, do you want to talk about Stephen Stills at all? Go for it. I mean, I don't know. I like Steven Stills as a character is like probably one of my favorite background characters, and I do like the like quote unquote twist at the end where he just like comes out and is like, you know what, I'm gay. Um, although, like, I don't know, reading it this time, like, I guess just like contrasted with like 
the Ramona, like, it was just a phase. Like, yeah. there's a little bit of, like, it is valid, and some people do just, like, realize they are, like, totally gay, even though they've, like, you know, dated, like, women or whatever, but it's, like, but I do appreciate that as just like a weird insert into like a, a pretty heterosexual narrative <laughs> of yeah I always appreciate sort of like that being thrown in a little bit yeah because mm. it's I and it's very funny where um Scott is like freaking out and uh Stephen Stills is just like I don't know. You had a lot going on. I just didn't tell you. Like, you came back from volume five, but you seemed really busy. Yeah, and I think if you look back at the previous volumes, if you pay attention to what Stephen Stills is doing with this knowledge at the end, you can say, nope, yep, that was probably the plan from the start. Like, this was a thing that really happened. It's just Scott didn't know about it. That's why it suddenly became so important that they record an album. Yeah, okay, that's yeah. Point. So they can spend all of those arduous hours in the studio. We gotta get this right. Sorry, we're gonna have to listen to this another five times. I I I really like that. I like that. You know, the the music producer he falls in with turns out to be his gay lover, and he seems actually very happy at the end of the book. And that was yeah. I would say that was uh, that was a nice uh, that was a nice twist that worked out well. Yeah, and it's one of the arcs that, uh, to Jonathan's point before, it's like it wraps up nicely. Yeah. I think Envy wraps up nicely, Knife mm-hmm. wraps up nicely. Mm-hmm. Kim. Even Kim, like Kim's arc is not a happy arc. Yeah. I don't think she's in a very good place necessarily at the end of this because she doesn't know where to go next. But it's an arc. Like mm-hmm. She ended up somewhere and it makes sense for her character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know. I Even though, again, it's it's a little bit... A little bit messy. I did appreciate sort of at the very end, uh, when it's all said and done and Gideon's been defeated and everyone else, all the side characters have had their, their closure, that Scott and Ramona just sort of hold hands and sort of step through that door into the void and it's, I don't know, like, are they still going to be together? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I, I, I did like that it's, again, and, and yeah, maybe what's really compelling to me is the metaphor that they're going for, that the actual what is actually happening is not the best, but... This second reading, I really picked up on the metaphor of it, and I just thought, this is, I really enjoy just that overall, this is a story about relationships are complicated, people are complicated, it's never, like, you, it's never just, like, boy meets girl and falls in love, and that's it, Cupid shoots an arrow, and it's it's done. Like, there's always complications, people have weird tics, people have evil exes, people have good exes, like your relationship is constantly in flux because you're constantly in flux. And I just, I think that that aspect of this entire series, I really enjoy. And I think it maybe would have been a, whole, a better comic if it had focused more on maybe the interpersonal stuff and, and let the video game stuff kind of slide away a little bit. Mm-hmm. Maybe focused a little more on, on volume four. I don't know. I liked the gimmick. I'm yeah. glad that they had the video game stuff woven right. throughout. Uh, but the relationship stuff definitely carried the work. Yeah, yeah. I think there, there needs to, be, at least at the end of the series, there needs to be more of a connection between those things. Mm-hmm. Whereas the, the connection is much more clear at the start. Uh, and at the end, it's kind of two things happening simultaneously, where it shouldn't feel like two things happening. It should feel like one thing happening. Yeah. In a very stylized way. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about Gideon, maybe, because... This is, like, Volume 6 is the only volume where we really know anything about this guy who is sort of the reason that this story is happening at all. And 
Uh, we don't really know a lot about his yeah. character, but the little bits that we see, I think, kind of all fit together to make sense. He does come up as kind of one-dimensional. Like, mm-hmm. he's the main villain, and nothing is ever given to take away from him just being a 100% villainous character. And uh, similar to what we saw in books well, yeah, he's got all, all of his exes are frozen in, like, time capsules or yeah, something. Yeah, that was really weird. That was really weird. Uh, but we don't see a lot of Ramona and Gideon's relationship. That's like, that true. flashback is totally missing again, and it's to the detriment. I think if we knew more about how did Ramona and Gideon meet, and what was their relationship like, and why was it so toxic, Mm. Uh, I think all we have is the scars. And you know what? Sometimes maybe that is all you get in a person's past relationships, is you have a person who arrives and it's only their scars that you have to to judge their exes by. Mm -hmm. So maybe if you're going back to, like, this is all metaphorical, that works. Like, Gideon is this one-dimensional cartoon villain from your perspective as someone who is trying to date Mm -hmm. uh, someone with a history. But I think, like, when Scott Pilgrim works... It works on a level that's above the character's awareness. Like, as the reader, we know more than Scott does, ideally, because he's not too bright and misses a lot of important information. And so I think, like, when we know more about what's happening than Scott does, like, the story works better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, yeah, a little more, like... It's, it's true now that you guys have brought it up. I mean, every X until Volume 5 got a little bit of a, a flashback or a backstory. And then, I mean, even, I guess you see it in Volume 4, because they talk a lot, but you don't see a lot of the relationship in Volume 4. But then from 5 to 6, you just basically don't have anything. And they're these flat, one-dimensional villains that Scott has to knock over. And it's just the drama between Scott and Ramona at that point. Uh don't really learn about the other the other side mm-hmm. um, which I don't know maybe I'm not sure if that's a conscious choice or not but yeah certainly like there's no redeeming <laughs> I can't really find any redeeming qualities of uh, Gideon like, and he might not have any some people just don't have any redeeming qualities <laughs> it's true it's true but well, I think it would be worth it to sort of see that right like show don't tell well yeah we've, we've talked about this before but I think that like like in writing, a, a successful villain is not necessarily one that you sympathize with, but maybe where you at least understand their perspective. Like okay. the the idea of just the mustache twirling villain is just so boring. Where someone who, at least when you understand, like oh, that's why they're that way. That's why they act out that horrible way. At least then you kind of you get it. You're like oh, you're so broken. Like oh, we can't fix you, we're going to have to stop you because you're bad, but like at least now we understand what got you there. And that's maybe something that's lacking in the last couple of volumes. Um, yeah. Right, like, a big question for me throughout the whole series was, why does anyone like each other? Why does anyone like Scott Pilgrim? Why, are there, why is there this parade of women going after him? Or like, why did Ramona and Gideon date? Like, for if, if, it, if we do like decide to interpret it as a book about human relationships, I don't think it has any legs to stand on. Mm. Like, it's just kind of... I'm sorry, it's so harsh. But, like, no, no. I don't feel like it really represents or discusses human relationships in an interesting new way. I don't feel like I learned anything. Although I don't think I'm the audience. I think it is probably meant for a bit of a younger audience. Mm-hmm. So to me, this is strongest as, like, a fun, 
fighting adventure. It's like a fun mm -hmm. video game reference, pop culture, just a fun adventure story, which is also completely valid. Mm -hmm. um, but analyzing it from that standpoint, I'm just so confused. Right. And, and actually, when Ramona says, why do you like me, Scott? The first thing he says is, you're hot. Right. <laughs> and then he goes, and uh, mysterious, I guess. Right. And that's it. Right. And then she says that she likes him because he's simple-minded, and um, it just doesn't hold up <laughs> right, for me. Right. Like, I don't, I'm not buying it. Like, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, um, even though it's, again, it's maybe, like, handled better than others, like, in a lot of ways, you could see Scott Pilgrim as being just kind of a man manic pixie dream girl storyline, story right? Where you've got, like, this loser dude... With not a lot of prospects, and for some reason, this like mysterious girl with colored hair comes out of nowhere and just has all this interest in him. Uh, and just somehow, at the end of the whole thing, he's going to end up with this girl, despite the fact that he's like failing left, right, and center. She's just going to stick with it right to the end because she's just into nerdy guys. Yeah. <laughs> do you want to? Yeah. Do you want to talk about the movie a little bit? Yes. Uh, I just watched the movie a second time before coming into this podcast because I didn't have time to reread all these books again. <laughs> um, man, great music. Oh, and yeah. Probably your best director choice. Um, in fact, like, just a secondary shout out is if you haven't watched Spaced, go watch Spaced. Uh, it's on my list. If you want to watch. I have noticed that I really do enjoy this director a lot. He works best with Simon Pegg doing the script because Simon. Pegg brings the heart, and s sort of um, Spaced has Simon Pegg and Jessica Stevenson doing the writing, and Edgar Wright, just phenomenal directing of a TV series, just simple British two seasons, uh, and the same kind of pop culture feel you're going to get out of mm -hmm. Scott Pilgrim, but with, I think, better characters, more plausible characters and more plausible romance between two people, and yeah, I think in a lot of ways... Uh, uh, the problem with the movie is that the heart is gone. It had the perfect video game reference and the music stuff, and just the plot just came completely unraveled halfway through that movie and just completely lost the emotional core, in my opinion. I'm not so sure. I really enjoyed the movie, and I think because it did condense this narrative down so much, it actually holds up a little bit better. Mm. Where the, the elements that are confusing, it's a little bit easier to gloss over them for mm. me. Mm -hmm. uh, and I actually hold up that film as one of my favorite adaptations mm. because I think it is such a faithful adaptation of this work. Uh, and so a lot of the, the scene transitions and the uh, sound effect elements are actually oh, yeah. brought into the movie itself. Oh, and yeah. it makes it one of my favorite oh, films. That, that stuff's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that stuff's fantastic. I, You know, I mean, the one thing I would say is I, I did appreciate that Gideon got set up more right from the beginning. Because Stephen Stills is talking about the G-Man is going to be at the Battle of the Bands right from the first fight. Hmm. And so Gideon was a little more of a omnipresent manipulator in that narrative. And I think that, yeah, like the first two evil exes was like solid. But just like I thought that um, when we got into Envy Adams, and I know that they're limited for time, but I just, I think we lost a lot of the, the drama and it, it got pushed out in favor of the video game aspects. Oh, okay. You know? Um, yeah, like, uh, this is one of my favorite movies. It's one of my go-to movies. If I just I, if I don't want to think too hard and I want to watch something fun, I'll watch Scott Pilgrim. But uh, I think the 
as much as the the music is all fantastic and like if I have the the soundtrack for it, if you go through the soundtrack, it's you couldn't possibly get a better soundtrack of Scott Pilgrim than what they put together for this. They got Beck to write original songs under an assumed name for this. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Emily Haynes too, like doing the the like. Uh, Metric? Yeah, well, it's Metric's the real band, but I'm yeah. thinking of the, is it, I heard such a long name, the Envy Adams band. Um, uh, Clash of Demon, Clash of Demon Head. Head. Thank yeah, you. yeah. And they have, like, the, the actress, like, Allison does, Ray? yeah, she sings the song in the movie. Uh, that is not the version that's on the soundtrack. They're both good, though, so I don't know. <laughs> oh, I mean. Brie Larson, sorry. Oh, yeah, Larson. Right. yeah, yeah. And it's Allison Poe. Yeah. yeah, awesome. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> phenomenal, phenomenal casting. Like watching the movie again, I'd forgotten. Like I remembered like Chris Evans and um, like a few of the famous people, but like I'd forgot Brie Larson was in there. <laughs> like there's so many famous actors that were just you know, like, whoa! Like this is like an all-star cast. Um, I do have some criticisms, though. I think <laughs> all the things that we've criticized the books for over the past three episodes are more of a problem in the movie like mm-hmm. every single thing that we've flagged is like hmm this is not that great like and the movie seems to do that exact thing but more yeah um and he he takes way longer to break up with knives uh, yeah in in the movie and i really see i think the biggest problem i still have is that knives helps scott defeat gideon at the end mm, yeah. that's a that huge problem for me mm-hmm. like if if you're ju- and like forget about just let's say you just we're doing our basic narrative. It's the hero fighting for the maiden. It's you know he's fighting for Brunhilda. Like okay, then he just has to do that. He has to defeat the villain and win the girl. You can't like have his ex girlfriend show up to like help out. It just breaks the whole narrative apart. Like he has to earn it, right? Because it's about him. Gr- and, and if you're accepting that this is a movie about Scott Pilgrim growing up, like, he has to then earn it, or your movie just, why are we doing this? It just doesn't make sense anymore, because he's still relying on other people to get him through stuff. Like, he ha- that's his big moment. He has to get it together and defeat Gideon by himself. If he gets help, I don't know, that lessens him as a character, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing that I was thinking of after just re- reading these books and then doing these episodes... Uh, of trade waiters and watching the movie uh, is that like there are a lot of characters who are whitewashed for the movie uh, and some of them it's hard to tell really uh, well I mean we talked about um, Wallace Wells well, okay I will also just say like rereading the books there's like it's never like outright said that he's Asian and I can't find okay. anything to back that up uh, so okay. I don't know if I just assumed that he was Asian when hmm. I was a teenager and I've just like run with this assumption forever but I don't think necessarily it's like wrong or bad okay all right and i I, was sorry yeah okay you also read no i always thought that he was too yeah Mm -hmm. yeah there's a a lot of characters where it's really not clear i mean there's some other characters that i was thinking of too like lucas lee maybe uh or even um roxy like there's this whole thing where she's half ninja uh and then like there's another throwaway point where it's like she's probably dyed her hair or something and it's like Maybe, maybe she's supposed to be um, mixed race, possibly. I, I, it's not clear in the book at all, but like all of those characters who it's not clear in the book are all played by white actors. 
that's I, fair. I, 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 that's interesting, because I rewatching it today, I was actually thinking to myself, I'm like, hey, they got an actual Indian actor to play Matthew Patel. They have an actual Chinese actress playing Knives Chow. Maybe this is just because Hollywood's done this is such a bad Jeffrey, job. This is, like, Jeffrey, this is literally the lowest bar. Yeah, like, like, this, like, this, I'm, I'm sorry, I really, know. really don't think that we're going to hand out no, no, cookies no, no. for fair being enough, like, oh, okay, yeah. you <laughs> actually cast an Indian person no, no, as an Indian know. character. Sorry, sorry no. lowest bar. Yeah, 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 I'm yeah. not even going to pretend to be like, yeah. wow, yeah. this is so no, great. No, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that like, they should be rewarded, but like, I was thinking to myself, like, oh, like, seems like they were doing an okay job with casting, and then when you bring that up, I was like, oh. I'm saying, though, like, I'm saying that, like, even with some possible whitewashing going on, which is a thing that Hollywood always does, it's still, uh, like, better, like, more Asian actors in this movie than 99% of what uh, other things that Hollywood does, which is, like, says a lot more about Hollywood than about this particular story. The the bar is is far too low. We need to raise the bar higher. Uh, uh, Yes, not like Edgar Wright is ever, like, revolutionary. Yeah. Yeah. Scott Pilgrim, no. Sure. Um, yeah, I'm still going to say yes. I would 
would say yes too, but with some major reservations and that I'd have to now couch it with like it is a product of its time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if if you want to know what it was like living in the early 2000s in your 20s in Toronto, <laughs> then you should read this series. Uh, it's a wonderful snapshot of a time and place. I think there's also some like solid cartooning in these books. So like, oh, as a cartoonist, it's definitely like an interesting work to look at. And I, I feel like even on rereading it, it's like, yeah, I, I really enjoy the way that this book is laid out. The fight mm-hmm. scenes are really fun. Yeah. I had a lot of fun rereading those fight scenes because it is definitely the bread and butter that attracts me to manga. And so for something to be paying so deeply homage to that, something that I love, it was really fun. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's um, really interesting and impressive. I'm looking at these like stacks of books, like the amount of work that went in. Um, I think it's great how much the art style developed. And um, I love the art, like by the end, especially once that style had kind of like solidified. Um, and get that iconic style. It's really appealing um, and has influenced a lot of art that I like and probably has influenced me subconsciously too. Um, and I would recommend reading it as well, especially because of its cultural influence. But I am curious to see if it will, with that, like I would say I'm curious to see if it will stand the test of time. This is my one thing that mm-hmm. I would have. Maybe what I would say is start reading volume one and keep going until you get sick of these characters and then jump off. And you can rest assured that it won't get better after that point. Yeah, and uh, yeah, the the ending doesn't really wrap anything up, so I would, <laughs> I would echo that advice. You mm-hmm. might make it to the end, you might not, but either way, you w- will have it's, read some good comics on the way. It's it's the kind of story where you read volume one and you go, oh, he's going to defeat the seven evil exes and win the girl in the end. You kind of know what's going to happen, right? <laughs> like, there's no twists, as far as like... There are small twists. The end. Yeah, there's small, small twists small along the way, but... <laughs> You know he's going to end up with a girl by volume seven. Yeah. Okay. Well, six volumes. Or volume yeah. six, sorry. <laughs> this heat. That's why they're just mad. That's that's why there were twins, so yeah. that there could be right. six volumes instead of seven. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, I think that's exactly why. <laughs> okay, let's do shoutouts. All right. All right, I'll start. Again. Uh, so I'm Jeff Ellis. You can find my work at jeffreyellis.ca, uh, and I'll just shout out the Nameless City by Faith Aaron Hicks. Volume 2 is out, and Volume 3 is on the way soon. Uh, she's working on it, so yeah, it's a good series. Get on it. Start reading it. You got another shout-out? No, we're done. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I've got a shout-out. I've got one. Okay, okay. Go, go for it. Yeah. Okay, so I mentioned the Comic-Con I went to um, in the last episode, and I'm just trying to think of some people, some names to shout-out, because I got to meet some really cool people. Um, so I'd like to shout-out Theo Ellsworth, I believe that's how you say his last name, Um He's an awesome artist, and um, I got to meet Andrew McLean, who does uh, Headwalker. So those are both cool people to check out. Also, my name is Jess, and you can read my comic uh, at liquidshell.tumblr.com. Uh, I'm Jonathan. Uh, you can find me at phobos-comic.com. And my shout-out today is going to be a book that I think Jeff should read, although I also think everybody should read it. i will be very surprised if you don't like this comic. Okay. It's called Let's the Speak Challenge. <laughs> it's called Let's Speak English by Mary Cagle, and it's about the time she spent as an English teacher in Japan. Oh, I someone sent me a link to that, and I've read a few of the webcomic pages. Yes, it's quite good. Is there a book? There is. I got it off Kickstarter. Ooh, well then, I Kickstarter. Why didn't you tell me about this? All right. I don't know. I would assume you would know these things. Right. Well, I'm sorry, Mary Cagle, for not backing your Kickstarter. It's still available for sale. I will probably buy one. 
Okay. Uh, I am Jam. You can read my comics on wastedtalent.ca, but I am overheated and don't have any things to shout out. Sorry. Recommend the sun. I recommend staying out of the sun and staying hydrated. <laughs> yeah. Real MVP is air conditioning and water. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. That's a great shout out. Um, <laughs> no, it's not a shout out, but it is. It's really hot in here. I'm so sweaty. And my name is Kate Gross, and you can find my work at, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I have a webcomic, LunarMalities.com. That updates every Saturday. And I'm going to shout out another podcast, because I listen to this podcast every week, and it's my favorite podcast right now. It's called Retail Nightmares, and it's so good, and it's so sweet, and so funny, and the hosts are just really excellent. It's local Vancouver people, so they talk about Vancouver stuff a lot, which I love. Because it's gossip about, like, so many retail places in the city. <laughs> nice. <laughs> what is our next book going to be? Our next book is going to be Princess Jellyfish. Okay, and we're going to do two volumes, but next episode will be volume one. The Trade Waiters is presented by Cloudscape Comics. Thanks to the Vancouver Public Library for letting us record in the Inspiration Lab and Sleuth for the music. You can find us at tradewaiters.tumblr.com as well as iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Thanks for listening.